Regulators, politicians of all stripes, and increasingly the general public, are placing ever greater pressure on pension schemes to play their part in moving society away from fossil fuels and into renewable energies. Now, there are of course concerns among some trustees about maintaining their fiduciary responsibilities to their members. Pension schemes are being asked at once to pay their members appropriately, while also cutting back on certain investments and in other cases, plowing capital into areas that may take longer to realize returns. It's not difficult to sympathize with the task that trustees face here. In the UK, the government has also asked them to support its leveling up program, demanding plans that set out how local government pension schemes can invest up to 5% of their assets in domestic initiatives. This will doubtlessly include environmentally focused investments. Again, we are steadily redefining the roles played by pension schemes in society. But one survey of pension trustees released earlier this month found that almost half of respondents would want their schemes to divest from asset managers with lower ESG scores. More and more schemes are now publishing net zero statements, while there's a growing focus on illiquid assets as they approach their end games, which offer a smoother funding journey and help schemes to achieve rising cash flow demands. These assets may also play a role in upgrading the UK's renewable energy infrastructure. Marrying ESG investments and generating returns, it seems, is the name of the game. My name is Alex Janiel, and with me today to discuss the role institutional investors can play in the great energy transition, I'm joined by Michael Urban, Deputy Head of Sustainability Research at Lombard ODA, and Matthew Ives, an economist and complex systems modeler, currently working at Oxford University on the Oxford Martin Post-Carbon Transition Programme. Welcome both. Michael, let me start with you. What part will renewables play in the great energy transition? Hi, Alex. Yes, with great pleasure. And hi, Matt. Great being with both of you today. So I guess the short answer is is a very large part. Now, just allow me to elaborate a little bit on that. So today, about 75% of global greenhouse gas emissions stem from our energy system. About roughly two-thirds of global greenhouse gas emissions come actually from burning fossil fuels for energy used for transportation, industrial processes, electricity generation, as well as heating. So decarbonizing our energy system really is a top priority in the climate agenda, and renewables are set to play a key role in delivering on the world's government as well as corporations' net zero promises, which we know are ramping up. Now, it may seem like a trivial point, but actually, interestingly, we find that lots of people tend to misinterpret what the IEA has put in its net zero pathway, that specifically scaling up clean energy infrastructure actually needs to happen before we scale down fossil fuel-based energy. And that's really a question of energy security and the resilience of energy systems. Now, for this transition to be orderly, we essentially cannot just turn off the fossil fuel tap. First, we need large-scale investments in clean energy. So to give you a sense of the magnitude of the challenge, uh, again, going back to some of the work done by the International Energy Agency, the IEA, its net zero scenario states that by 2050, up to 90% of global electricity generation should probably come from renewables. And that's compared to a low level of about 10% today. Now, the vast majority of this scale up, about 70%, is set to come from solar PV and wind. To give you again a couple of numbers, which I'll then try and illustrate uh, with something that perhaps is a bit more palatable, but that implies annual additions of around 630 gigawatts of solar PV and 390 gigawatts of wind uh, by 2030. That's roughly four times the record levels that were set in 2020. 
Now, perhaps just to, to give you a, a way to think about this in a way that maybe is a bit more uh, down to earth, for solar panel alone, uh, that scale up would mean installing the equivalent of the world's current largest solar park roughly every day, all the way up until 2030. So critically, really a, a critical part in the energy transition, but also a pretty significant challenge in terms of the scaling up that needs to happen in order to meet uh, the net zero commitments that have been made. And perhaps you could take us through, Michael, the investment risk and opportunities of the energy transition. Sure. So, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a complex topic, but I'll try and just highlight a, a couple of key thoughts. So maybe on the risk side, so besides the sort of kind of macro trends that I was just describing now, that there's really sort of that question of, you know, how do you actually deal with the fossil fuel phase out? And that's clearly that's it's an obvious risk. Uh, there are, of course, key questions that remain over how much we should rely on bridge fuels, the likes of natural gas, the recent controversies around what has been coined as the taxonomy gate and the inclusion of natural gas in the taxonomy sort of exemplifies how controversial the topic remains. And obviously, it's a very high stakes topic as well, in the sense that, as we know, natural gas prices have gone absolutely through the roof. And there's all sorts of conflated ideas around whether this is tied to the energy transition or not. There's also, of course, on the risk side, the question of this rapid increase in demand for clean energy and electrification. So again, back to this notion of this enormous scale up that needs to happen over the next decades. That, of course, poses some inflationary risks and, of course, generally some supply chain risks as well when it comes to the rare earth materials as well as the valuable metals that are needed uh, in supplying the, the value chain for the scale up of generally electrification. Now, on the opportunity side, so one of them is clearly linked to the, to the scale up of wind and solar that I mentioned earlier, and we definitely see opportunities in both. Um, on one level, there's, of course, opportunities through solution providers, so companies that are directly involved in this scale up uh, and throughout the value chain for wind and solar. So typically, you know, solar panel manufacturers, but also actually some opportunities in relation to companies that are actual transition leaders who are cleaning up their energy mix in, that, in efforts to reach net zero. There's a, a second important opportunity in storage and grid flexibility. Uh, they're, of course, both needed in order to support the rapid increase in renewables capacity. And that's, of course, to offset the intermittency issues and uh, the distributed nature of uh, generate power generation through wind and solar, typically. And perhaps the third and last interesting opportunity is also related to the hydrogen economy. As you'll know, there are now three types of hydrogen from gray to through blue all the way to green hydrogen. And of course, the production of green hydrogen actually relies on renewables and in particular wind and solar. And so that, of course, also needs to be scaled up in order to offer solutions in some of those hard to bait sectors, the likes of steel or shipping. So those would be the key, key opportunities I'd highlight. Thank you, Michael. And Matthew, the debate seems to currently focus a lot on wind and solar. Why should institutional investors in particular look to wind and solar as opposed to other forms of renewable energy? Well, you could just look at past trends. It'd be an easy way to explain that. There's been about a threefold increase in the volume of trade of, 
of renewable energy products and um, 95% of that has been, uh, sorry, that's over the last 15 years, and 95% of that has been in solar and wind. And then if you look at what governments are planning to do into the future, there's a potentially tenfold increase over the next decade uh, in our research, but in terms of what's pledged, um, Michael's already talked about it, but the majority of that is in solar, even though a lot of what the investment is going into is in wind at the moment. And a lot of that has to do with the cost declines of these technologies. The research that we've been involved in uh, looks at these technology trends and to what degree we can actually forecast uh, future declines in the costs. Our research, which has been shown to work across uh, many different technologies, uh, it's been validated against 50 across a number of different industries, and, and we've applied it to the energy system and looked at various different technologies and found that uh, there are certain technologies that have consistent declines in their costs. And those trends are the best predictor for future cost declines, better than we've shown, better than expert elicitation or other methods for predicting cost declines. And what we're seeing is that solar in particular will decline in cost down to as low as $10 per megawatt by 2050 if we continue the same trends of deployment of these technologies. This is based on uh, an application of what's known as Wright's Law. Um, you've probably heard of Moore's Law in association with computer technology, that rapid decline in the costs of computing power has got a natural time trend to it. Moore's Law is about that time trend that the costs come decline through time. Wright's Law is actually an older law. Uh, it was developed by Paul Theodore Wright in around World War II when he was looking at the cumulative production of aeroplanes that he was involved in and saw that the cost declined with cumulative production. And so applying that sort of methodology to um, energy technologies, we've seen that we made some predictions back in 2016 that have held very true to this day that the cost declines in solar and wind would continue according to their past long-term trends provided cumulative production continues. And, and that's the key there is that uh, if the, the countries that have made their pledges and there are around 135 countries that have pledged to net zero or carbon neutrality goals, that's 88% of the greenhouse emissions, that's 90% of the world's GDP. And that's some really major economies like China, India and the US they've got their cost of solar and wind close to their nearest rival in the fossil fuel industry. And that's a real disruptor at the moment. And those costs are set to decline uh, and will accelerate as soon as they reach price parity with fossil fuels um, everywhere. And what new approaches, uh, Matthew, can investors use to assess investment opportunities in renewables? So the kind of work that we've done for this Lombard Odia report is it's beyond the kind of standard analysis of individual investments. What we do is we're looking at mega trends, but it's some pretty exciting stuff. I've already talked about the application of empirically grounded technological forecasts to some of these technologies uh, like solar and wind. There's another piece of work that we've included in this analysis, which is around green products in general. And it looks at the ability of countries to 
export green complex products. We look at the complexity of products because they're associated with economic growth. Um, We're looking particularly at green because we're looking at what these trends in terms of net zero pledges and so forth mean. And what these green complexity indexes will tell you is the complexity of a country's green exports for which they have a revealed competitive advantage. So it basically allows us to see the competitive strengths of different countries for exporting green complex products. And if you apply that to the net zero transition, the the green energy transition that's underway, and for which the economics of the situation with the declining cost of solar and renewable will give them this positive feedback dynamic, whereby as the cost decline People demand more, people deploy more. As they deploy more, they learn by doing and the costs decline even further. That's rights law, as I was mentioning before. When you look at the green complexity potential of these technologies, you can see which countries are doing the best at capturing some of that growth. And, And it is staggering sort of growth. Like, as I said, 300 billion in investment in solar and wind in the last couple of years, that's looking to grow tenfold if we continue that cumulative deployment trends that have been happening for the last two decades. Now, that's a fair if, but you can still speculate that even with the pledges that are happening right now by various countries on how much they will deploy of these technologies, you're really tipping your costs over the price parity edge with fossil fuels. And and so you'll generate more of that positive feedback, more deployment in these technologies, more cost declines. So which countries are going to be able to capture the most of that? So we look at the green complexity index of those countries and how well they are placed for capturing some of that growth in in solar and wind and also a green complexity potential. So what countries are close in terms of their production capability to be competitive to join into that market? So who has the most potential in terms of what they currently are capable of doing to produce products that are meaningful for that growth that we're seeing in in solar and wind and storage as well. I would add storage to that story because the more storage you have, the more renewables you're going to be able to put on your energy system infrastructure. And we're seeing the same cost declines in both battery storage and electrolyzers, which is used for hydrogen uh, that Michael mentioned. Um, So we're looking at various countries to see which of those have the, the greatest potential to capture this huge growth in the, the market. And Michael will talk about looking at that at a, a much more granular level and seeing what that means in terms of the invest, individual investments and companies within those countries. We also looked at our renewable energy potential by countries. So were some countries like my home country, Australia, which doesn't look very good according to these green complexity indexes. We've lost a lot of manufacturing capability. We're very much becoming a petro state in terms of major exports of fossil fuels and minerals. But we have also a lot of renewable energy potential in Australia. And so to what extent can we export some of that? And and our findings were that there are some countries like Australia that have an overabundance of renewable energy potential. There are a few countries, so Singapore, Japan, uh, Korea, 
that have a scarcity potentially, and there are projects in the works to export major components of green energy, hydrogen and cabled electricity between those countries. But the vast majority of countries actually have enough renewable energy potential to meet their own demands into the future. So a huge shift in geopolitics in that regard, if we do go down this road, as we predict that we will, to a world where most of the countries are producing their own energy within the country. So who's going to gain the most out of this transition? If that's the case, it's if it's not energy exporters, it's those countries that are able to gain the most from the sale of the solar and wind products and storage. And so that was a, a key component of this report is to look at who's going to gain the most. And which countries are best placed to capture these opportunities? So much of that green growth has been captured already by China. Most people know that. But what most people possibly don't know is much of the investment China has made has been for their own domestic market. So they have deployed more than twice of their nearest rival, which is US, in terms of renewable energy generation. But by doing so, they've also increased their capability for exports. So in 2000, they had about 4% of this export market. Now they're up to 18% and they're dominating it. Um, At the moment, there's a lack of polysilicon, which is a key factor in the production and price of solar panels. But what we've seen recently is Chinese companies are planning to increase that production dramatically. By 2023, they'll be able to produce up to 900 gigawatts of solar panels, so a huge increase, more than three times than the expected demand for this year. Another country, which was an early adopter, Germany, has continued to retain a constant around 14% of the export markets, which is showing that being an early adopter does have an advantage. Some people have talked about the the losses that Germany potentially could have had from their feed-in tariff program that promoted renewables, but they're doing well in terms of exports out of that. Um, There's a couple of countries that have good, what we call green complexity potential, that potential to move into this market. China has more growth to be had in this space, Italy and Spain, possibly surprisingly, and the US, the, the Biden administration's new Build Back Better program is putting them in good place. The US also has a large domestic market, which mostly is met by the US companies. They have tariffs on imports, and they're also the third largest exporter. Japan is the fourth largest exporter, and both US and Japan, although they've seen a decline in their shares, they do both have a significant percentage of their GDP invested in green recovery spending, uh, which is good news in that regard. Finally, the US and Australia have good green energy export potential. They've got more than enough to meet their own demand and could actually get involved in export, particularly, as Michael mentioned, green shipping. And an interesting case study was uh, the United Arab Emirates, which is like most other petro states in that they've got a dominant fossil fuel export. But unlike Australia, they have actually seen an increase in their uh, green competitive potential. And it's based on their efforts to diversify their production and their export capabilities. And you can see that in the record, that that is getting a a clear increase in their green complexity potential. Uh, So countries can turn it around if they, they put the effort to it. 
And finally, Michael, perhaps you could talk us through the corporate landscape in wind and solar. Yes, very happy to. So we, we've been we've been working on developing um, an investment universe for listed equities of high conviction, pure play wind and solar companies coming down to a list of about 50 companies worldwide that we're particularly interested in following. Um, so I'll, I'll give you a bit of a flavor of how that sample of high conviction wind and solar companies look like. So at the moment, we're looking at a split that is slightly tilted towards solar, which I think reflects actually quite nicely what Matt was explaining earlier. So it's about 60% in solar and about 40 in wind. Uh, there are, of course, some companies that operate across both segments. So, um, in terms of the sectoral breakdown, about 40% of those are industrials that tend to be companies specialized in producing electrical uh, components and machinery. There's also another 40% that fall into this kind of generic category of information technology, which actually reflects uh, semiconductors in particular uh, and the prominence of semiconductors in this space. Uh, and finally, about 20% of utilities, sort of more thinking about uh, the distribution side of things. And so you have a, a kind of nice sort of uh, opportunity set across different market capitalization as well. About 50% are 50 companies are large cap companies, and then the rest are, are small and mid. Um, there's actually quite a large group of, of mid caps in this space that are very interesting to look at. Also in terms of the geography, and I think this sort of links back to what Matt was describing earlier in terms of what we have seen um, on the global stage in terms of trade, uh, it's interesting to see that there's a very clear dominance from Chinese companies, uh, which not only have come up those global rankings at a macro level, country level when it comes to trade pretty dramatically over the last 25 years, but also not only in terms of trading with the rest of the world, of course, China has also a massive domestic market. Um, and and that, is, that is really reflected in terms of the dominance of Chinese corporates, wind and solar corporates in our sample, uh, with roughly about 50% of companies, uh, which are Chinese companies. And then they're followed by, by the U.S., about 20%. So really, China and, and the U.S. dominating here. And there's, of course, a whole discussion, which I think is, is fascinating, about the current trade tensions between China and the U.S., uh, which we, we get into to some extent in the, in the report that Matt mentioned earlier. Uh, and, and I invite you to take a look at it. But perhaps just to, to close on, uh, maybe focusing on beneath that kind of generate corporate landscape, thinking a bit about the kind of key technologies and some things that we are quite excited about that these companies do, and sort of going beyond just wind turbine manufacturing and, and solar PV panels manufacturing as well. Um, so there's definitely some exciting stuff happening in terms of advanced producing advanced solar tracking technology that is actually really helping raise the overall solar efficiency of solar panels. We also see some interesting developments in terms of the generations of photovoltaics that are being developed and used, particularly with next generation solar panels, which use high efficiency materials that go beyond conventional polysilicon. And then finally, in, in wind, there's clearly a huge expansion potential when it comes to offshore wind generation, uh, specifically in the floating segment, so platforms that allow basically to have wind turbines placed in deeper waters where the generation potential is, is increased significantly. 
And linked to that, and that ties back to uh, what Matt was explaining earlier in relation to interconnecting those systems as well, is, of course, related to offshore wind cabling companies that facilitate uh, subsea interconnection. And perhaps last but not least, uh, something that we looked into recently, an interesting, perhaps kind of niche part of what's usually categorized within ceramics in industrial classifications are rare earth, the likes of neodymium, which are used to build magnets, uh, which are high-strength magnets uh, used for wind turbines. And so some really interesting sort of deep uh, industrialized specializations to be linked to this very promising rise for wind and solar in the years to come. Thank you both for joining us for what has been an absolutely fascinating discussion. If you'd like to find out more about pension schemes in ESG and indeed watch a video that Michael and I made on the subject, please visit our website, which you can find at pensions-expert.com.